dedicated to each and every one of you who appreciate a great glass of wine. You know what I mean? It's Monday. Let's raise a glass to the beginning of another week. It's time to unscrew, uncork, or savor a bottle. And let's begin exploring the wine glass. Today, I am sitting down with author Christopher Rowland, author of Press for Champagne. Champagne is a wonderful thing, so wonderful that there are many famous quotes. Coco Chanel stated, I only drink champagne on two occasions, when I am in love and when I am not. Winston Churchill declared, remember gentlemen, it's not just France we are fighting for, it's champagne. And of course, Napoleon announced, I drink champagne when I win to celebrate, and I drink champagne when I lose to console myself. So while I was studying to become a champagne specialist, the one statement that was repeated over and over again was, it's not champagne if it doesn't come from champagne. So I thought it would be fun to sit down with Christopher, a self-proclaimed champagne lover, and see what exactly makes champagne so special to him. And did you know that that meme about press for champagne is an actual sign? It's a real button. We'll talk about where it is and how I hope to get to push that one day for myself. While you're listening and hopefully drinking some wonderful champagne, take a moment to rate and review Exploring the Wine Glass. Ratings are now available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and Audible. Taking one minute of your time is the only way the algorithms will suggest exploring the wine glass to others. And since you are enjoying the podcast, other wine lovers will too. Slancha! Hey everybody, I'm Lori Budd, a UC Davis winemaking program, someday service, champagne specialist, and WSET level 2 graduate. You can find Exploring the Wine Glass on all the socials, as well as your favorite podcast catchers. If you haven't subscribed yet, now's the perfect time to swipe, subscribe, rate, and review. I promise I'll never tell you what to drink, but I'll always share what's in my glass. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Allure of the Poor, sponsored by Dracina Wines. I am your host, Lori Budd. I am a UC Davis winemaking graduate, WSET Level 2. I am a champagne specialist, which is going to come into play today, I have a feeling. And I am uh, owner and uh, partial winemaker, along with my husband, of Dracina Wines and Paso Robles. So today... We are going a little bit different than a our typical podcast or a lore of the poor in the fact that we are talking about a wine book. Somebody who loves wine so much that they felt that they were going to write a book about it. And the book we are going to be talking about is Press for Champagne. And it is written by Christopher Rowland, and he is with me today. So welcome, Christopher. Thank you very much, Lori. I appreciate it. I'm happy to be here. So I was excited. You reached out to me on social media. So I was thrilled. I love champagne. Um, I love bubbles. Bubbles just kind of make me happy. Um, <laughs> so I was pretty excited to uh, receive the book. So thank you for sending the book. Actually, thank you for sending two books because Amazon had a little faux pas going on. Um, but uh, so we have this book here, Press for Champagne, A Guide to Enjoying the World's Greatest Sparkling Wine. 
So before we get into the book itself, let's just talk about you a little bit. So what got you into the wine game or the champagne game? Are you, are you just champagne or are you just wine, wine lover all around? Yeah, well, thanks, Lori. And, and thanks again for having me. Um, I'm a wine lover all the way around with someone who particularly loves champagne and put it that way. Okay. I, uh, I got into wine like a lot of people in my, um, my young uh, adulthood, I started to drink wine and I liked champagne and who doesn't like champagne, right? So I enjoyed it, but it really wasn't until a little bit later in life that I really started getting a formal education in wine. And I took the French wine scholar course. I started taking the WSET courses and I eventually got my diploma from the WSET. And so, um, I really just, you know, my wife calls me an extreme hobbyist. So I, <laughs> once I get into something, I get into it really deeply. And, but I remember when I started out in my journey of really formally learning about wine, uh, reading about champagne and, and looking at just how complicated it is to make champagne, how much it goes into it, how much care goes into making champagne. As you know, it's very difficult to make a bottle of champagne because of all the rules and regulations and the things that are required. And I was just fascinated that people would go through that much effort you know, to, to make a bottle of champagne and that what I was holding um, really was the product of significant love and attention. And then um, something else happened, which is I started to realize that champagne isn't just champagne. And that's really what the book is about in a lot of ways, um, because I have a lot of friends who like champagne, but champagne is difficult to understand from the drinker's perspective in some ways because people refer to it almost generically, right? They'll say, would you like some champagne? And they hand you a glass of champagne, right? <laughs> and and it, it's as if it's as if, if, if champagne, it's bubbly, it's light, it's highly acidic, and, and that's it. And I think people get the idea that there are quality differences in champagne. There are some that are more expensive than others. But I think what people don't appreciate and what I became um, really fascinated with is just the diversity in champagne. How many different kinds and styles of champagne there are and how many winemaking techniques there are to make champagnes taste different from one another and how different people react differently to those different champagnes. And so that's a long way of saying that I just became really fascinated. And then I just started drinking a lot of champagne and trying to understand it more. <laughs> and your, your wife is like, all right, you're just drinking this stuff. You need to be able to do something with drinking this stuff. So, all right, I'll write <laughs> right. a book about it. That just means I need to buy more champagne, right? <laughs> right, exactly. Well, she, she will admit that um, there are times when she has been frustrated with the amount of time I've spent. Uh, studying wine and 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 then writing the book, but she will be the first to admit that she has benefited greatly from that process. <laughs> <laughs> I believe that. I believe that. Um, so, the, before we even go further, first of all, I have seen press for champagne. Like, there's memes about it. It's all over social media. Um, like, you know, you know, versions of it or whatever. I, and it wasn't until I read your book that that's an actual button. Like it was an actual place that created this button. It's not just like, Hey, this is a fun meme thing. So can you go a little further into where this button actually is and, 
you know, did you push the button? (laughs) (laughs) Sure. Yeah. So it's the title of the book is Press for Champagne. And where I got that title was from, well, originally, and I don't know if uh, they were the first to do this, but there is a restaurant in London called Bob Bob Ricard that is a pretty interesting eclectic restaurant. And they drew attention to themselves by installing these buttons at booths with the label press for champagne. And if you press the button, somebody brings you a glass of champagne. And there's just something joyful just about thinking about that, right? I mean, just the the idea of sitting at a booth and seeing a button, there's no way you're going to resist pressing that button, right? (laughs) I mean, ding, 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 ding. Absolutely, absolutely. And so, and and so, and of course, since then, other people have uh, started to sell these or create these really crafty uh, buttons that aren't maybe hooked up to something, but there's a bell. I have one um, at my home and everybody who comes to my house loves to press this button. It rings like a doorbell and it's just really, it's just really fun. But I, I think the idea is that champagne is associated with joy and you just, you look at that button and you can't help but smile. And so the, the book really is about the joy of champagne. You know, that that's why I chose the title because the book is not about just let's talk about the wine region. Let's get into the history. Let's get all the facts so that you could, let's say, pass a wine exam. Um, that's important. And there are plenty of books like that that are very, very good. And I have some of those things in this book, but really this book is for the wine drinker, for the champagne drinker. And so that's why I chose the title. <laughs> and, you know, the, when you were talking about the shit, you know, you ask for champagne and somebody brings you champagne or whatever. I, my husband gets very upset with me and I, I don't do it to be mean or to do anything, but like, we'll, we'll be out. I, I don't do it to pe- to friends' homes anymore in, in the homes, but you know, we'll be out at a restaurant or someplace and they're like, Oh, do you want some champagne? And the first words that come out of my mouth is, is it champagne? Or is it sparkling? And then I get the little smack from my husband. You know, I'm like, well, (laughs) it's, I'm not being me. I'm I'm just asking a legitimate question. I would like to know because my decision might be depending on my mood. My decision might be yes or no of if it's champagne. So like, it's a big deal. (laughs) Absolutely. And that's a fundamental aspect of champagne that again, we're talking about the wine drinker, the average wine drinker, or even the sophisticated wine drinker, it doesn't matter. There's something that you expect from a glass of champagne, right? And so you see this a lot on airplanes too. At least if, you, if you're lucky, you want every once in a while to be in first class. And before the plane takes off, they say, would you like champagne? And then they hand you a glass of Prosecco. And it's not that there's anything wrong with Prosecco or, or Cava or any of the other sparkling wines. There are plenty of sparkling wines other than champagne that I enjoy. And, and there are plenty of sparkling wines from California, for example, that are quite good. Um, and so, but the, the issue is champagne is a protected name. It's a protected designation of a particular wine region in France. And uh, champagne only comes from that region in Champagne, France. So yes, and it's made in a certain style too. And that's important because Prosecco, for example, which is the best selling sparkling wine in the world, more bottles of Prosecco are sold in the world than bottles of Champagne. But Prosecco is made from a different grape variety, a very fruity, aromatic variety. It's made in a different way. 
And so you get a very different sparkling wine, which again is fine. But if you want champagne, that's not what you're getting if you get a glass of Prosecco. And that is, that's all I'm doing when I'm asking that question. It, well, I, because I'm expecting, let's go back to Prosecco. Okay? Now, I actually really do love Prosecco, but it is a vibrant wine. It is, you know, it's Galera. So it's a completely different wine than Chardonnay or, you know, or Pinot Noir. Um, you know, it's, it's a different expectation and it's kind of like I try to I try to equate it to people um, as you know that the when you have a box on the floor and you're expecting it to be heavy and you <laughs> go to pick it up and it's empty, right? That that whoa, you know, your brain kind of freaks out for a second, right? That's kind of what your pa- or my palate does when I'm expecting it to be champagne and it's prosecco, and it goes the other way around. If I'm expecting it sure. to be prosecco or cava or something, and you know, and it's champagne that's a different you know my my palate does that box that box shock you know sure absolutely and one of the things about prosecco for example is that um, in almost all cases prosecco is made in a way where the wine does not uh, sit on its on its leaves right and so you don't get the the brioche baked bread dough toasty aromas in prosecco that you get in champagne and if you want those, you're going to be missing those in Prosecco. On the other hand, you know, just this weekend, we had somebody over our house. We had actually, my wife was um, ha- had a few of her friends over and I served them drinks, which is like one thing I can do. <laughs> and, um, and somebody asked for a mimosa and um, we happened to have Prosecco in the refrigerator. Prosecco is much better, I think, in a mimosa than champagne because this bready aromas and bready toasty flavors that I really like in champagne, they don't go as well with orange juice. Right. Uh, and so, um, yeah, it's, it, you're absolutely right. You, this is an important thing to know about champagne. It's a fundamental, I talk about this in the book. I have a section on what champagne is and is not. Now, unfortunately, um, the United States uh, allows certain California producers to who prior to 2006 were using champagne to still call their sparkling wine champagne. So unfortunately, there's a deception in the marketplace. You see something called you know, Corbel champagne or Andre champagne. Um, and it's very confusing. And I think it's really unfortunate, but that's still permitted. I was going to say, uh, I was reading it and um, I was, I was actually reading it on the plane, you know, and uh I, I wrote down, wow, he's he, he's got he's got a very powerful feeling against California <laughs> champagne. Well, I, <laughs> well, against the name. It's funny. So I do have quite a number of opinions that I express in the book. And <laughs> now I have nothing against again, I, I, I'm uh, from California. I have originally I have nothing against California sparkling wines. I think uh, there are some excellent California sparkling wines. Um but I just what I'm against is the use of the name Champagne on any wine that is not from the Champagne region in France. And that I am sure the people in Champagne are like, you know, are reeling over the fact that that was allowed because it, when when you go through the Champagne specialist program, 
it is drilled into your brain. I think it's the fir- it's every other sentence, right? It's not champagne if it's not from champagne, right? Right. Or it's only champagne if it's in champagne, you know. So they must be like reeling over the fact that this is allowed, you know. Um, but at least it's stopped in you know proprietary. You know, it, you can't do it anymore. Right. Right. You can't create a new sparkling wine in the United States and call it champagne. Right. So my first question is, uh, what do you feel? Okay, let's talk about champagne as a region itself. And one of the things that makes champagne champagne is where it's located. And it really is at one of the really kind of the most northern limit for what actually is prime wine growing regions. So what do you think is going to happen? You know, put on that little psychic vibe for, you know, psychic hat for you. What do you think is champagne is doing to help in this concept of client concept, this truth of, of climate change happening? You know, they're already at that limit and things are changing. Right. So it's an interesting problem, and I, I talk about this a little bit in the book, that you know, Champagne is a place that makes great sparkling wines for a couple different reasons, one of which is obviously is just the experience, right? The fact that they've been doing it a long time, they've been making great Champagne, great sparkling wines for a very long time, and that experience and ability to do it matters, right? Um, but a second part of it is exactly what you mentioned, which is it's a cold climate and it's at the limit at which um, these grapes, uh, Chardonnay, Pinot Noir, Pinot Meunier can successfully ripen. And that's very important in sparkling wines because what you want is ripe grapes, but they ripen to about 11% potential alcohol. So because in the second fermentation, you're going to get another one and a half percent of potential alcohol, right? So you can't you, you, you're not going to, it's not going to work if you have high alcohol wine, high alcohol wine in the first place, right? The base wine. And the second thing is, is that the grapes ripen with very high acidity. And that's very important too, because a hallmark of a great sparkling wine um, it is its high acidity. And the hallmark of champagne is high acidity. And that's important for the style. So, with climate change and with the region getting warmer, um, there are obvious difficulties in the, in the long run because if you don't have the acidity anymore and you have grapes that are too ripe, well, then you're not going to have great sparkling wine. Now, so far, it hasn't been so bad because in a way, it might have even helped what's happened so far because in, in past decades, there were times when the grapes just didn't ripen, right? It was so cold that um, in some years, there wasn't much champagne to be made. Um, this year, no, so now harvest time, harvest has been moved up and on the calendar, and uh, it's not that difficult. I don't want to say it's easy, but it's not as difficult as it was in prior years to get ripe grapes every year. And in terms of acidity, um, one of the things that um, has happened is a conversation about um, malolactic conversion and whether that should be blocked or enabled. And, and in, you know, today there are more producers um, blocking malolactic because they think that, you know, they don't need it 
Um, it was ne- it might have been needed because the acidity was so off the charts and harsh, right? That you might have needed it um, to make a palatable wine. And now, if you just will simply um, not uh, permit a wine to go through malolactic conversion, then you can maintain that tart uh, acidity. So, for right now, I, the wines are still good. <laughs> you can still <laughs> get great champagne. They're making great champagne right now. The the issue is future decades, what's going to happen. And that's the same thing in every wine region, right? I mean, there's a concern that um, we won't get great burgundies 30 years from now, right? Um, and then they'll have to plant some other grape there, you know, some, and, but we'll see, but it's, it's definitely a concern, but so far it's been managed. And I'm curious. So, you know, another region that is so entrenched in tradition is Bordeaux. And, uh, you know, just recently, they're now, they've announced that different grape varieties have been allowed to be planted and will be able to be part of the Bordeaux blends. And that was shocking enough that some, you know, this region that was so entrenched in these five grape varieties basically are allowing these other grapes in here. But I don't think that that ability translates to champagne because of like how you were talking about the acidity what what a champagne what a sparkling wine is it's not necessarily just the grapes that are growing you have to be able to have the grapes that create that acidity that and the low lower alcohol so that that second fermentation can occur so there i think that they're they're facing a different type of dilemma that or a more difficult dilemma than some of the you know than other regions the burgundies or that where yeah I, we're known for these grapes but we can kind of change this around champagne's a little different in that realm yeah and it's different in another way too i mean in theory let's just go totally crazy and say that you know one day in burgundy they decide well we can't do Pinot Noir anymore because it's way too ripe. So we'll just start doing Syrah, you know? Okay. <laughs> but the, the issue in Champagne is that these three grape varieties, um, as I go into in some detail in the book, they, they really work for a number of reasons. Right. One of which is that um, they work well together. Um, they add different things together. So you'd have to find different grape varieties that work together in the same way. The other thing that's really important is that um, they're not uh, aromatic grape varieties, right? So that you, you can't start planting aromatic grape varieties um, in Chimane. You could, right? But the, 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 you wouldn't. You wouldn't make. Um, I say you wouldn't. There's lots of people who do lots of things, and that's <laughs> wonderful. But um, again, going back to your the prosecco issue, right? Galera being an aromatic variety, and there's no lees aging so there's no toasty notes those two things really don't go together right the real aromatic grapes and uh, this is why typically in the wine world you don't see um oftentimes you don't see um uh, a sparkling wine made from an aromatic grape variety and lees aging so um you'd have to again you'd have to make the whole thing work i mean somehow the whole thing works right now and there are a lot of moving parts to it and so, yes, it would be challenging. And there is talk in Champagne, like elsewhere, of um, using different grape varieties. It hasn't really gone anywhere, and it would take a long time for that to develop. So we'll see. I don't know. 
I, I have difficulty predicting what's going to happen next week. So it's going to happen 30 years from now. <laughs> right. I have no idea. <laughs> Very good answer. Good answer. Right. Um, so you actually just kind of led your way into what my next question was going to be. In the book, you go rather in depth, and I loved it, of how these three grape varieties work together and why they work together and what each one does in terms of creating that finished product that is champagne. So can you elaborate a little bit about what Chardonnay, Pinot Noir, and Pinot Monet, uh, Monier, um, actually how they work? Yeah, sure. And before I do that, it's important to, to just, I think, give the background, which is that, of course, there are plenty of champagnes, great champagnes, that are 100% uh, Chardonnay, 100% Pinot Noir, and 100% Pinot Meunier. So that they don't have to marry together, right? And um, and then when you get into blends, you see this the entire range of blends. This is what really creates styles in champagne, right? Because there are um, champagnes that are 90% uh, Chardonnay and 10% Pinot Noir. And then there's ones that are flipped, right? And then there's some that have a little bit of Pinot Meunier, maybe 5%, some that have 33%. So there's really no limit to what you can find in terms of the way they work together. So I want to, so to be clear, there's no one formula, you know, it's not as if um, there's a scientific formula where you have to put this much in of one and this much of other to make things work. Um, that being said, they do work together um, in first a technical way. That's probably not that important for the champagne drinker, which is, is that, they ripen at different times and bud at different times. And so um, given the fact that there's a lot of um, uh, weather <laughs> differences and different vintages in Champagne, that can be important. There can be some years where, and in some locations where Pinot Meunier does better than Chardonnay, let's say, or Pinot Noir does better than Chardonnay. And then that's a good thing in a cold climate because then you can still make wine, right? And especially given the fact that there is reserve wine in Champagne. Um, so just, just the fact that you have this difference in the way that they grow and their resistance to disease can matter, right? But in terms of the way they marry together, so, you know, Chard most people are familiar with Chardonnay and Pinot Noir and, and, and the, the flavor profiles. And, you know, Chardonnay can be, you know, very high in acidity um, in Champagne very um, lean in a lot of ways. Um, Pinot, Pinot Noir is lower in acidity. It still has high acidity, but in Champagne, it doesn't hit the same high notes. Um, it can add this like softer, uh, rounder texture. Um, people say that Pinot Noir adds body um, to the blend. I'm not sure that I 100% agree with that description, but I get the point. So I'll just, without being too, pedantic i'll just go ahead with body um at this point but um so when you get chardonnay and you get um, a really really crisp high acid um fairly neutral um uh wine with pinot noir you're getting more of the of the you know the red fruit but even you know stone fruit and that sort of so you get different fruit profiles that work together that meld well together and then pinot Meunier, tends to be even more fruity. So uh, with more red fruits, um, softer, 
it can add some, you know, people call it rustic, but I prefer spice <laughs> um, uh, to the blend. So all those things just make it interesting and it's interesting to play with them. And they're different in, in flavor profiles and texture profiles in ways that can matter in the glass. And now a word from our sponsor. Did you know that Dracina Wines has a wine club? We named it the Chalk Club. Draco is on our label, but Vegas was getting a bit jealous. So we decided he deserved to be our wine club spokesdog. In Las Vegas, betting chalk means that you are betting on all of the favorites. And we're gambling that once you taste our wines, we will become one of your favorite wineries. The club is simple, yet a bit different than most. We don't ask for a lot of commitment like others do. Choose between three tiers. The Sweet 16, where you'll receive three bottles twice a year and get 25% off all orders. Sign up for the Elite 8 and get 30% off all orders and receive four bottles twice a year. Or make it to the final four and receive six bottles twice a year, as well as receiving 35% off all purchases. All tiers receive discounted shipping, are customizable, and are eligible for unlimited referral bonuses. Add $15 to your bank for each person you refer. Head to www.dracinawines.com or the link in the show notes to find out all the Chalk Club has to offer and to sign up. We've stocked the odds so that you can get our award-winning wines without breaking the bank. And um, in the book, you do talk about, I have never had a 100% Pinot Monnier uh, uh, champagne, sparkle, anything. Um, and in the book, you brought it up. Was that, diff- is that difficult to find? Is So it, it is less difficult today than it was, okay. say, 10 years ago. Um, it's Pinot Monnier is very interesting. By the way, um, there are there's a big debate about what the grape is properly called. I just I didn't mention this in the book because I don't want to get into it, but some people prefer to call it Meunier. Some people call it Pinot Meunier. And there's this weird argument about who's right and who's wrong. Um, I don't really take sides there. I think that um, it, but it's know, been lo- determined, locally. It's yeah, been determined it's, it, to be a, muta- a mutation. So, right. so it's, what, what's right. so wrong so, with calling it? <laughs> I, I don't know why, it, you know, it's one of these things where I think it's been local custom and, and or it's argued to be local custom in Champagne to call it Meunier. Yet, if you look at older books on Champagne, they call it Pinot Meunier. So I don't, it, again, it, it's, you could write a whole article on it. And frankly, I don't think it matters, <laughs> but I, I would, I just thought I would, I would mention that. But so what's great is that there are more and more Pinot Meunier, 100% Pinot Meunier. In fact, I'm going to have one tonight and oh. yeah, so um uh apollonis uh which is made by um it was previously called l'oreal and now it's apollonis uh it makes 100 percent pinot meunier called authentic meunier and it's not very expensive and it's really good um and there are some also now very expensive 100 percent pinot oh. meunier uh, champagnes as well but what i think is great about that trend um is that Pinot Meunier was just considered for a long time just the, 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 the ugly child in the family, you know, the one that you kind of hit off in the corner and uh, brought out when you needed the, the, the kid and when you didn't put him away. But, and, and it was almost as if people were embarrassed that Pinot Meunier was around. But um, there's nothing wrong with Pinot Meunier. I think it makes fascinating champagnes on its own. I mentioned some of them in the book that have become quite popular many of them 
And so I'm all for trying it. Again, my thing is, you know, I want to try it all. I want to, I want to see what's out there. I mean, that's part of the joy, I think, of drinking wine is the exploration. We can all find really good wines and great wines. And you can find your favorite three or four wines and then drink them all the time until you're dead. Or you can explore. explore. And, I, and I love the exploration part. And that's what I'm trying to encourage with my book, too, is exploration. Um, so, yes, to answer your question directly, it is getting easier to find 100% Pinot Meunier. And in the book, I so I... I'm, as I was reading, I'm trying to think, how did you create the outline for this book? Did you say, okay, I have these, and I, I don't know, I didn't count, but somewhere early in the book, you said 22 champagnes, but I think you you talk about more than 22 in, in, in the book, but I stopped counting, you know. Um, yeah, there's more than that. There's, in, okay. it, there's 22 in chapter two. Oh, okay. Probably okay. Saw that. Yeah. Okay. Um, so did when you were creating the outline for this book, did you say, okay, I have these champagnes and when I drink these champagnes, this is what comes to mind. Okay. Now I'm going to negotiate these champagnes to go into the book or did you outline the book and then say, okay, I want to talk about a rosé champagne. I'm going to talk about this one. And then pull that down. How did you, how did this book come together? Yeah, it was more the second way because what I wanted to do was really provide a guide that you could walk through this book um, from the beginning to end. And if you took that walk with me or took a similar walk, I'm not suggesting you drink every single champagne in this book. And it's, it's, I I think I ended up discussing somewhere around 40 or 45 is the grand total. Um, I think it's about 45. And I think I say in the book, if you drink a third of these, or if you drink um, even not a third of these, but ones like them, you can get the point. And the idea is, so it was really constructed that you would take this journey, start in the beginning, go through it and see what these champagnes do for you and how you can understand them better. So it's not like, hey, here are the top 45 champagnes that I like and you should drink these and stock up and that's that. It's really about, hey, let's figure out what kind of a champagne drinker you are. You know, what do you like? And of course, you can't really know what you like until you know what's out there and what what to do. But I also organized it in a way that um, is really illustrative and comparative. So illustrative in the sense that I tried to find champagnes that illustrate a point, right? A point I'm trying to make about something. So if I'm talking about a wine that's oxidative or a wine that's reductive, which is the concept I get into, I want to give you some champagnes that are oxidative and some that are reductive. So that, that, that are good illustrations. That was mainly the thing. So I, instead of jamming into it, just the champagnes I like or wanted to drink, um, that was really the point was to was to do it in a way that was illustrative and then instructive and it's and actually the oxidative reductive thing i think was very um, beneficial to have samples of because that's not something that anybody can go into a store and pick up a bottle and say oh this is an oxidative wine right they're not going to know that so that was very beneficial to have examples for and and uh, what i was thinking is 
kind of beyond champagne, just for people who are trying to study, I, I like oxidative reductive is a confusing concept to, to, to people because if it's oxidative, there's a reduction. And, and when you're redu- when it's a reduction, right. it's oxidative, there's oxygen. So it, it's, it's like stupid science, like, you know, um, so to have those examples in there, I was thinking, wow, if somebody's really having trouble understanding this, this is proof in a bottle of what it does. So the examples play into a play very powerful into that. Yeah, I'm glad I'm glad you think so. And that was really what I tried to accomplish. And to illustrate it a different way. So last night I was teaching a WSET level one course. And um, I hope this just happened last night. A woman came up to me and she said she knew about my book and she wanted to ask more questions about it. And then she she said, you know, I love champagne, so I want to learn more about it. And she said, and just out of the blue, she just said, you know, my friends like Krug. And I know I should like it. I guess I should like it, but I really don't like it. And I said, see, that is great. See, so I happen to love Krug. Okay. But my response was not to tell her, oh, here are all the reasons why you should like Krug. My response was, okay, that's really good information. But what you don't know, what you don't understand is why you don't like Krug. Right. And I think I know why she doesn't like it because it's on the oxidative side. And that's most people who don't like it, but that's the point is, I mean, it's, it's not, it's interesting to know that you like or don't like a particular wine, but what's really powerful is to know why you like it or why you don't like it, because that helps you figure out what else you might like out there. Right. right? And that helps you on the path of thinking, okay, well, if I don't like this wine, I'll probably like this other kind of wine or something like that. And so I think that's the whole point is uh, of, the, of, of something like oxidative reductive. It's not to be able to you know, be a scientist and know what those terms really mean, be able to run around and spit facts about which champagnes are <laughs> oxidative and which are not. The whole point is to understand your own palate. Things are all are different. And I, I love your, um, your tagline, I'll never tell you what to drink, but I'll always share what's in my glass. And one of the reasons I like that is that I think one of the concepts you're expressing is that second part of I'll always share what's in my glass is you're helping educate people about wine, not in the sense of saying, hey, here's this wine. I know more than you do. It's good. So go drink it. You're explaining concepts to help people figure out what's out there and then go see if they like something or not. Right. And that's really what I'm trying to do as well. Yeah. And that's, you know, it's, you said it earlier, the only real way to find out what champagnes or any wine that you like is to pour yourself a glass and to try it. And I got, I got so upset uh, on Instagram this morning and I, I, I won't say names, I wouldn't say whatever, but what it, it, it was a relatively lar- person who has a rather large following and is supposed to be a wine educator. And it, you know, and what the, what the real was, was them. And I'm not even going to say what the variety is, um, them standing there and, um, uh, somebody pouring a bottle of a varietal specific wine and the song was no, 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 no. Right. And in the words, it's saying 
I just, there's not one out there that I like there. Don't, if I see this right. label, I don't want anything to do with it. And I think that that's as, as an educator, that's horrible because granted there may be a champagne that the Krug, I, I drink it and I don't like it. Does that mean I should never, ever have any other champagne? No, because there's so many different things out there. And, and even Krug, you know, heck, let her try a different bottle of it, a different, you know, because they make different yeah. ones, right? Um, but I was so upset over that because you're teaching them, I taste it once and I don't like it. I'm done with this. Right. And I say, and so that's, you know, part of what my whole philosophy is and what I try to impress on people in the book is, Yes, I know a lot about champagne. I've drunk a lot of champagnes, but what I'm really here to do is guide you into becoming the very best champagne drinker you can be for you. <laughs> and, it, and if you end up now, that said, that doesn't mean that someone off the street doesn't know anything about champagne and drinks a glass of champagne and says, this is terrible is going to be right. Because honestly, you, you have to know something about what you're talking about to have an opinion that, that matters even to yourself, if that makes yeah. sense. In other words, if there's something that I start to get into, but I don't know anything about it, I hope that I've been wise enough to reserve judgment about whether I like something or don't until I've really been through the field. And what's hard and the main thing is doing it in an organized way. So even if you get a hundred bottles of champagne, okay, you start drinking them and you say, I like this. I don't like this. I like this one. I don't like that one. What's difficult is if you don't understand, again, getting to the point of, if you don't understand why you don't like something or why you do or what's going on in the glass, it's very hard to then create your own little map of champagne for yourself. And that's, again, that, that's what my book is really about, is guiding through this process for you. And at the end, you'll have your own map, so to speak, Great. right, of, of what you of what your preferences are and what you what you'd like to explore. and where you'd like to go next. And in the book, I see, I have never heard of this. So I was interested that you were talking about in the book. Um, there's a special club, the club Tresors. Now mm -hmm. I've never seen, could be that I'm just oblivious, but I've never seen um, this designation on a bottle. So can you explain what that actually is, what it requires? You did so in the book, but you know, to not give away sure. all of the <laughs> secrets <laughs> That's okay. of the book. I mean, <laughs> just in general, um, the special club is essentially, it's just an organization of, of producers who got together and decided we're going to have a club and call it the special <laughs> club. I mean, that's essentially what it is. It, it's not like it has anything, any force of law or that it, um, and, and in fact, I'll say that in general, I think it's, a little bit dangerous to get too caught up in these things because you know there's all sorts of label terms that are unregulated yes. or that are um, that mean one thing in one region and means something else in a different region. I talk about this when it comes to Grand Cru and Premier Cru and how deceptive those terms really are in Champagne. But with something like Special Club, I think it's interesting. It's a, it's a small organization of producers who actually do um, have tight standards as to which wines can. Um, have the special club label. And I think it's not to say that every single special club champagne that I've ever had has been great. I've had some that I thought were disappointing, but they actually, there's a taste test. They, they, they test them. They decide whether the, the champagne every year um, makes the cut. 
They test them multiple times. Um, sometimes uh, members of the club, their champagnes that they have submitted don't actually make the cut, which is really interesting. And so it shows they do have standards. So, um, so I, I, again, I don't want to give the impression that you should go to the store. And if it says special club, that that means this is a really great champagne. But what it, it does mean is that at least there's been some screening by some really knowledgeable folks in a club. Um, and, you know, I, I made the point in the book really about a particular champagne, which was mm-hmm. the first um, 100% Pinot Meunier right. to make it, um, which I think is interesting. And it was goes to your point is, is it difficult? And again, 25 years ago, I don't, I'm not sure that there were a lot that you could have found, especially, you know, easily of 100% Pinot Meuniers. And, and now there's a trend of, uh, of seeing more. Well, when one makes it into the special club, everybody wants to be in the club now, right? <laughs> That's right, <laughs> right, right, right. Um, you have an entire section in the book dedicated to um, the rosé champagne, and you start talking yes. about it. And the thing that intrigues me about rosé champagne is what is deemed kind of, and I don't, I, I don't want this to sound horrible, what is deemed a lower level process in the United States and in other areas is how the tradition is in Champagne. So in the United States, where I talk about it all the time, the two main methods of rosé is saigné and direct press, where saigné is bleeding and direct press is picked purposely. And it's really the low level wines that are, oh, I'm going to take this red wine, I'm going to take this white wine and you know, mix it together. Yet in Champagne, that is a common and actually, I don't know, one of the most common ways of making rosé. So can you talk about rosé champagne and, you know? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. I think rosé champagne is fascinating for a number of reasons. The the, the first one, the one that you mentioned, just the production method. So that method, uh, the assemblage method of actually taking red wine and pouring it into white wine to change the color of the wine to rosé, is barred in France for still wines. I'm not aware of a, a French still wine um, region, a, a, a region that allows French uh, still rosé to be made that way. Um, but it is allowed in Champagne. And uh, so that itself is is interesting in how it's made. And then it's also made from the Sagné method that you described. But what's really interesting about rosé Champagne is that it is really expensive a lot of times. Um, you know, when you think about rosé, a lot of people just think of it as a kind of fun, fruity, not that serious wine, right? Now, I, I actually think there are some pretty amazing rosés out there, still rosés. Um, I could think of a number that that are not cheap and are really good, but for the most part, this whole rosé all day thing and the whole, you know, pink wine thing. Well, marketing. Um, yeah, it's marketing and, and, you know, it's it's not very expensive in, in still wine. And um, Prosecco is now being made into rosé and those aren't expensive right. either. But, um, so for example, expensive champagnes that people have heard of, Dom Perignon, Krug, Cristal. The, the white champagne costs about half as much as the rosé versions of those champagnes. So that's so you're taking a champagne that's already expensive, you know, let's say at $200 Cristal and turning it into a 
$400 Cristal Rosé. So something else is going on in Champagne. And, and um, it's, it's uh, I think, so different from what we're used to when we talk about still rosés. These are, in many ways, just absolutely profound wines. Um, I discuss a few of them in the book, but I, I can just tell you that some of my greatest moments and, and what really matters is, is are the moments, right? It's, it's, it's interesting to talk about the technical aspects of the wine and how they're made, but I'm very, very adamant about the, the idea that what matters is the drinking experience. <laughs> and because obviously there would be no wine without winemakers and that is, they are very important. <laughs> there would also be no wine without wine drinkers and, and, the experience of drinking wine and, and the joy that we get out of it, to me, from a consumer perspective, is the most important thing. And so, and, and, I, and I say that because rosé champagne is, I think, just a delight. I mean, there are so many great rosé champagnes. And yes, some of them are really expensive, but some of them are not. Um, and even, you know, in, in the 50 40 50 60 range there are rosé champagnes that are just absolutely beautiful and i think it's unfortunate that some people just don't appreciate that because they again they their image of rosé is more about the supermarket and the line of, of of pink wines on the shelf that aren't that interesting but i promise you anybody <laughs> that if you really start to explore rosé champagne and you put aside your any preconceptions you have about rosé and you just look at it as a wine and you open your mind um you will you will find great wines and that leads to one of the biggest questions that i always get asked and um kind of like the oh you can find this thing is grower champagne. You go pretty far in depth with the grower champagne. <laughs> so first, why don't you just explain what grower champagne is and then talk about some of the good, the bad, and the rumors of growers. Absolutely. Yeah, great. I'm glad you asked. I get asked this all the time. By the way, the, the, the question that I'm asked most frequently is, hey, who are your favorite uh, grower champagnes? Or you know, can you, can you give me a recommendation for four grower champagnes? And I've thought a lot about why that question is asked more than any other. Um, and I'll get to that. But so just to give you the definition, so most champagne, the vast majority, and in the United States, something like 90% of the champagne we get or more is from the big champagne houses. The ones you've heard of, you know, Moet and Chandon, Lanson, you know, um, Roterer. Arunar, you know, and on and on. The, the big ones, um, they make a lot of champagne. They completely dominate the market. And that's because traditionally there was this setup and still exists today. I, I, it's still actually what happens is that most of the grapes in champagne are not farmed by the large houses. They're farmed by growers who don't make champagne. So there's this traditional division in champagne that we don't see as much in other areas, right? In a lot of areas, what we're used to is you see a producer, the producer grows the grapes, brings the grapes in, makes wine, right? In Champagne, it's never worked that way um, for the most part. It's with uh, exceptions. For the most part, you have a lot of growers and then a few champagne houses and the champagne houses buy grapes from the growers. Now, there are exceptions because 
Now, a lot of uh, champagne, host, uh, champagne houses own their own vineyards and, and source their own grapes, but e even they usually are still sourcing at least some of their grapes from growers. And now, to get to the phenomenon, there are growers who make their own champagne. It's not that that's never existed. It's just that it's something that became incredibly popular and fashionable you know, in the last 20 years, let's say. And, and specifically, it happened because there were um, some American um, importers and distributors who figured out that this was a great way to sell really good champagne in the United States and elsewhere. And they did. And so now you have this phenomenon and there are entire books uh, written about this phenomenon of growers who are now to some extent, the rock stars of champagne, right? Um, because the, at the big houses, unless you're super into it, like, like me, I mean, you don't, you might not know who the winemaker is, you know, at Rotorer and, and you may not know some of the people, but what this does with grower champagne, it puts a human face on the wine. And as I'm sure you know, and you, you interview winemakers, right? This matters. People like knowing yeah. uh, who the winemaker is and they like the story of the family, you know, the, the family owned vineyards, the family owned winemakers. And I do too, by the way. I mean, just to be very clear, I, I, I mean, who, who doesn't want to support small businesses? Who doesn't want to support farmers? And who doesn't want to support small winemakers? I mean, I, I don't know anybody who doesn't. The, the, the issue that we get into, <laughs> I know you, you know where I'm going with this, and, 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 I, and I talk about this in the book, is there's this weird you know, fetishizing of, of growers and grower champagne that I think has gotten way out of proportion to reality. And, and the reason I have a problem with it is not because I'm trying to make some kind of political statement, but I, I think again, from the perspective of the consumer, which is, is my, that's all I care about. You know, I don't make wine. I don't sell wine. I'm a consumer. My friends are consumers. And I wrote this book for wine consumers. From the perspective of the consumer, what the consumer is interested in is the champagne, right. <laughs> you know, is it good? Is it not good? Or, or what's it about? And, I'm not going to deny, and I, and I say this in the book, I'm not going to deny that every time you drink a wine, uh, there's off, not every time, but often when you drink wine, there's a story attached to it that's in your brain, right? So if you drink Cristal, you're thinking about whatever you think about Cristal. Um, if you're drinking from you know, wine that your best friend made, you're thinking about how much you love your best friend, right? So I'm not denying that that's part of it. But when we look at what's in the glass, the point I think that is important is that grower champagne is not as a category better than house champagne period. Okay. <laughs> there are great grower champagnes. There are great champagnes made by the big houses. There are mediocre champagnes by the big houses. There are mediocre champagnes made by growers. And the fact that somebody owns a really small parcel of land and makes wines themselves and they're a really cool person does not mean by definition that they make great champagne. It's just not logical to think that. And, and so, um, again, people can think what they want to think about any grower and fall in love with whoever they want to fall in love with. And I have no issue with that. I just, you know, when, so to get back to the question that you get asked and I get asked about, hey, who are your favorite growers? There's this implication that 
well, just forget about the house champagnes, right? Let's get to the good stuff. Let's get to the growers. They're more interesting or whatever. And so I resist that somewhat. Now, that said, <laughs> I drank a lot of grower champagne. I think, in fact, if, if you look at the, in the book, the champagnes I talk about are way disproportionately favoring toward the growers as opposed to the houses. So why would that be given the rant I just went on? <laughs> um, there is something really great about grower champagne that, that in the reason why there is more grower champagne in my book proportionally, you know, out of proportion than there is house champagne. The reason is grower champagnes can experiment and do experiment in ways that the big houses can't and don't, right? So talk about the fact that there are this Pinot Meunier phenomenon, right? This is largely, uh, uh, almost exclusively a phenomenon, I I'm talking about 100% Pinot Meunier, right? Uh, of growers or smaller houses. Because it's not that popular, it's not going to sell. You're not going to sell, you know, a million bottles of 100% Pinot Meunier champagne, and so it's just not worth the time right. or effort of the big houses who have. They can dial in their consumers' preferences, and they can dial it in pretty well. And so, if you want to find that, find weird stuff, interesting stuff, things that are different, you're going to be drinking a lot of grower champagne. So that's what I think is great about the growers. And the final point I make about this <laughs> is that let's talk about what's great about the houses, which is that they can reliably at a good price point deliver great champagne to you, right? So, I mean, not everybody has the time or ability to go scouring the internet to find one bottle of some grower champagne somewhere. If you go to a liquor store right now, they've probably got house champagnes, right, from big brands that are really good. and there is, and, and they're consistently good. And there is something, I think, to that. And my, my last question, because I try to keep these to an hour, um, yeah. is, uh, and this is another question I get. And honestly, it's an excellent question. So we're very used to seeing vintages in still wines. And when you go into a store you can be, if you're really into wine, you know what the current vintage is, or you know what vintage you're going to be looking for. If, oh, look at this vintage. Oh my God, it's still here. I'm going to take it. But that's not so true when it comes to champagne. We have a lot of no vintage, which an envy. And you do talk about multi-vintage, which I loved that you talked about that. But when somebody's going into the store, right, you, you can kind of go in and say, oh, you know what, the current vintage of, of this, I don't know, Sangiovese is a 2018, and here's a 2015 on, on the shelf. They're not selling these wines, right? These aren't fresh wines. Not saying it's not good, but it, it's not fresh wines. When you go into a store looking for champagne and you have no vintage or these multi-vintage wines, how does somebody know whether that wine is actually being sold by that store so the you know it's being turned over or is that an, an older bottle and maybe you want to pass on that well that is a little bit difficult to tell in a lot of situations because unfortunately labeling in champagne is incredibly erratic and back labels sometimes will tell you what the base year is and that's one way you would know okay. so of a of a, of a non-vintage champagne um, what you like to look for is to see if it says that the base year let's say is 2012 and that would tell you that's the base year and their reserve wines from earlier on in there um 
I wouldn't worry too much about the turnover, frankly, issue um, because Champagne does turn over at retail pretty quickly. And also, uh, it's not going to die anytime soon. <laughs> like, you know, um, I, I, I've never... I've, I've never had a situation where I bought a non-vintage champagne, took it home and thought, oh no, I got some kind of an older bottle and it's not good anymore in some way. So I wouldn't worry about that. But what I think is concerning is the fact that you know, people don't understand that a non-vintage wine is not necessarily inferior to a, a non-vintage right. champagne is not necessarily inferior to a, a vintage champagne. Um, you really just have to understand that these are two different styles of champagne and which I go through in the book. And that's more important really than trying to figure out, um, you know, whether you should buy a vintage. I know vintage champagne, it just looks cooler. Like you take it to somebody's house and you go, Hey, there's a 2008 or, but there's great non-vintage champagne and champagne built its reputation on non-vintage champagne and blending vintages. And in fact, I I mentioned, you know, Charles Heidseek's non-vintage champagne. It is absolutely amazing. It's uh, 40 to $50, depending on where you get it. And part of the style is these older reserve wines, which make it just an unbelievable wine. You take it home, put it nice in water, drink it, and it's amazing today. And you don't have to age it, and you don't have to worry about what the vintage is. So it, it's a little more complicated, unfortunately, with champagne than it is, like you said, with looking at a Sangiovese from a certain region and looking at the vintage year. So the name of the book, again, is Press for Champagne. Right, so, Christopher, can you tell people where they can find the book, what the best way to order it is, and where they can find you? Well, thank you. I appreciate that. So the best way, the easiest way, I think, is on Amazon.com. You search for Press for Champagne book, um, you will find it. Um, it's also available you know, elsewhere. And if for people who don't shop on Amazon, I think you, know, you can get it through Barnes & Noble or other retailers because it is in other distribution methods. Um, it's just that, you know, for me, I mean, I order a lot of stuff. I don't, I don't work for Amazon, but I order a lot of stuff from Amazon because I find it quite easy. And, yep. uh, so, you, you know, you, you can easily get it there. And also what's good about Amazon is you can see the ratings, you know, the people of what people have said about the book and, and that sort of thing rather easily. Um, in terms of where to, whether to, fi- where to find me, um, I am, uh, not super all over social media. The main <laughs> place I am is on Twitter where you and I are connected, um, C underscore S underscore Ruland, R-U-H-L-A-N-D, where I think if you just put in Christopher Ruland, uh, there aren't a lot of us out there, Christopher (laughs) Ruland and wine, you'll see. I tweet about wine and spirits, um, not just champagne, but I've loved wine and spirits for a long time. And um, I really tweet, what I tweet about mostly are the experiences that I've had and, uh, and the kinds that I think, you know, uh, the emotional, visceral experiences and things that other people might have as well. And I, you know what, I'm going to be remiss if I let you go without one last question, because I think champagne is spectacular. What is your favorite food pairing with champagne? <laughs> That's a good question, because it's a, it's a tough one for you to answer. I will answer this tough one because I drink champagne with all kinds of foods, which I just think it matches with, you wouldn't believe the range of foods. I, you know, I'll have champagne with a steak. No problem. I think it goes great with a steak. So, but that, all that said, um, what we do, my, 
we like to make popcorn and, and watch a football game or something. <laughs> I do, yeah, and, 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 and my and my wife, she really puts a lot of salt on the popcorn. We, we oh. I put a lot of I'm a butter person, so I put a lot of butter and she puts a lot of salt. So we get super salty popcorn. And the thing about champagne is it really goes great with salty foods. And so salted butter popcorn in champagne uh, is something I do a lot. <laughs> I it, it amazes me how well whenever somebody says what do I pair with this and lots of times I don't know what the food is like I'm like I, I don't know that's some weird food that I don't eat champagne go with champagne absolutely <laughs> it pairs with really, everything yeah except you know arguably not with super sweet uh food um, which is strange because we drink it with wedding cake and I'm not sure that champagne and wedding cake is I think that's more just carrier. tradition than but, yeah. yeah exactly but now, I actually think it's one of the world's most versatile food wines. Um, I, I'm going to have it tonight with uh, pizza, uh, pepperoni pizza, by the way. Okay. And um, But I, I, we drink it all the time. Now, again, there are so many different styles. So I won't necessarily have the same type of champagne right. with, with the same boots. So, you know, typically, it, you know, maybe I'll have a Blanc de Blanc champagne with the salted popcorn. Um, but if I'm having steak... I'll have a Blanc de Noirs, right? So 100% Pinot Noir, Pinot Noir or 100% Pinot Meunier, or maybe I'll have a Rosé Champagne. Um, so there are all sorts of, uh, you can get detail into details with the pairings, but I just think there's a champagne for just about every food. I have to agree with that. And I think that that is a perfect way to end this because it, champagne is so versatile. And like you said, there's so many different styles of it. And that's what I think I got the most out of your book is that the exploration into champagne, A, should be fun. And B, that there is a champagne or multiple champagnes for every palate out there. So enjoy the exploration and find some bottles that you enjoy and always find another bottle to try. Thank you very much, Lori. I really appreciate it. I've had a lot of fun. Uh, well, I am glad. And thank you very much for the book and for reaching out to me. I enjoyed it a lot. Um, and if, I love the fact that you have the different opportunity, the different champagnes in here. And I really did love that it wasn't always just the ones that everybody hears because, you know, that's, we don't need everybody, drink, you know, everybody's drinking those big, not that, again, not that big houses are bad, but everybody knows the big houses and you opened the, when people read this book, their eyes are going to be opened up to a wider array of what champagne has to offer. And it does have a lot to offer. I do. I'm glad you think so. And I'm glad you enjoyed it. Right. Well, thank you very much. And I will talk to everybody soon. This has been another episode of Exploring the Wine Glass. Thanks for listening. If you have suggestions on what topics you would like me to discuss, please reach out on social media. You can find me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook as Exploring the Wine Glass. I am also on LinkedIn as Lori Hoytbud. Of course, you can always email me at exploringthewineglass at gmail.com. If you enjoyed what you heard, please rate, review, and subscribe to help others find me more easily. And most importantly, tell your wine-loving friends, because if you like the podcast, they will too. Music is Wine by Kevens. Until next week, slancha.